Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the Weekend Edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. Huge news throughout all of election week, but possibly the biggest loser in this election, the polls. Once again, many pollsters and poll analysts got it all wrong. Coming into election day, it looked like there could have been a Biden landslide or a Democratic flip of the Senate, but that didn't happen. Going forward, these polls will need to be reevaluated and regain the trust of the people. For more on this and why the failure of the polls threatens our ability to understand what others think outside of these elections, we'll speak to David Graham, staff writer at The Atlantic. I don't know when people will trust these polls again. And I think pollsters are going to look at this and they're going to come through where they got things wrong. And we're going to know a lot more about what went wrong, you know, within a few weeks or maybe months. But even if pollsters are able to fix that, I think there's going to be a real loss of faith in them. And you have people who have been paying a lot of attention to the various analysts who predict this, um, looking at the forecast. And what we see, you know, whether that's the presidential election where a lot of states were off or some of the Senate polls, they just, you know, they missed the result often by several points, not just one or two or three, but five or six or seven. So I think this is way off and people are just not going to return to them in the same way. And I do think that without polls, you know, the great thing about polls is it gives us a sense of what our fellow citizens are thinking. And clearly polls do not do that. So I don't know what we are going to do to be able to get a sense of that without polls that are functional. Coming into this, obviously, they said it could be a possible landslide for Joe Biden. The Democrats were poised to take back the Senate gains in the House, and really none of that materialized. I mean, where we're at right now, uh, Joe Biden is still in a good position to possibly win, but you know, nothing really happened the way they were saying it was. What do you think is your sense of why pollsters keep getting it wrong? I mean, I just know anecdotally talking to friends and stuff, they say, Anytime I get a phone call or something like that, I never answer it. I'll hang up right away. So is it just maybe people aren't responding to polls in the same way? I've heard other people say, well, people are just lying to pollsters. What do you think is the overall sense of why we're getting it wrong so much? That's a really important question and a really tough one to answer at this point. Those are definitely part of it. Like people are not answering the phone the same way. And there are other ways that pollsters are polling, whether that's online or other things. But it's not always as reliable. I think some people are lying to pollsters or they don't know if that makes a difference. You know, a lot of the problem is that these polls rely on projections of what the electorate will look like and who's actually going to turn out. And it seems like maybe in some cases the pollsters just missed that. They misjudged how many people would turn out and which people would turn out. And the result is they were off. I think we're going to have to get a better sense again over time of, of what the problems were here. But I think the, you know, the overall damage to credibility of polls is done no matter what we learn about the specifics of the errors. I mean, yeah, specifically with the turnout, this was an election like no other, just massive turnout in every state across the country. Tell me a little bit more about how the polls figure into what we use them for, because polls have become really central to political coverage. I mean, we're, we're constantly relying on updates from new pollsters. And, uh, you know, as the election cycle continues, we're, we're hanging on every little update that we can get from these. This has been going for a while, but I think really since 2008 and the rise of 538, this has become an important thing. And in some ways, when you get these missed polls on elections, it's mostly it's a source of stress and makes people freak out. But of course, we have the election that really determines who people are going to vote for ultimately. 
we use polls for all kinds of things to determine, you know, what people's views are on a lot of important issues and for policymakers to understand where the country is and for us to really understand our neighbors and know what they're thinking, what they're feeling. And that's the thing that I think is the real problem, because there's no alternative to that. You know, we don't have an election that can resolve those questions. So we're really sort of flying blind about what our neighbors think, especially at a time when Americans are sorting themselves ideologically. They live with people who agree with them. Their partners are people who agree with them. Their families agree with them. The people they work with agree with them. So it's even harder to know what your neighbors, you know, what other Americans are thinking, especially in a pandemic when everyone's locked down. Just to echo that sentiment right now, we're constantly seeing polls about people not wanting to take first-generation vaccines once they're approved. For whatever reason, they're either politicized or they just don't believe in vaccines and whatnot. That number was hovering around 60% for a while. So what if that's wrong, too? You know what, I mean? what if there is this overwhelming sense that people do want to get it? I mean, now this throws into yeah. question a lot of different things. And it really is unfortunate. I do tend to agree with you about how it's tough that if we're relying on this so much and it's not telling us the truth, then it just sows a lot of this extra kind of distrust in, in media and all of this stuff. I mean, we think we know how voters feel about things like mask wearing or about how their governors are handling the pandemic. But now, I, you know, I kind of doubt that. I don't know whether I can believe the stories and whether they're accurate. And that makes it hard for me as a journalist to understand what's going on in the country. And I think it makes it harder for the public to understand what's going on in places other than their specific town as well. What do pollsters do now? How do they get back? How do they gain that trust? What can they do different? Like I said, this time around, they were trying to wait President Trump's supporters a little heavier just because in case they didn't respond to these polls. So what do they do now? Yeah, I think it's a two-part answer. Like one of them is to figure out what specifically went wrong. And I think that's going to take a while as we sort of plow through more data and, and look for the problems. You know, the second question is credibility. And I think that's something that you can only build up with time. Pulsers are going to have to figure out where they went wrong and, and sort of get better at calling these races and just convince people that they know what they're doing again. I do think that we might see less emphasis on places like 538 or, or the New York Times Upshot or The Economist or all these places that forecast elections. And, you know, what they'll say is they're only as good as the polls that come in. But if those polls are a problem, I think that's going to be a problem. People may not want to rely so heavily on uh, on a source that has not necessarily led them down the right path in yeah. the past. Definitely. After 2016, I was like, I'm never believing in polls. <laughs> then they got me to believe in them again. And now I'm back in this at square one, you know, so it's just really tough to believe any of that. But at least now, as you mentioned, the ultimate poll is the election. We'll get to that soon enough. But even then, the country seems to be divided pretty much down the middle. Joe Biden is leading that popular vote, but it's still very close in that sense of things. So we'll see how it all turns out. David Graham, staff writer at The Atlantic, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. The election this year will also mark the end of an era for the media, and things will change no matter what. The media has revolved around the president for the last four years, and the pandemic has advanced the new landscape digitally by years. There's going to be a wave of retirements in places like the LA Times, Washington Post, and even the New York Times. And battles over free speech and censorship will also continue when it comes to big social media platforms. For more on how the media is changing after the election, we'll speak to Ben Smith, media columnist at the New York Times. Well, I think, you know, you had a situation where, as anybody knows, people are consuming media on their phones, not sitting down on the couch and watching broadcast news anymore. And I think Donald Trump's obsession with things like CNN, like the NBC Nightly News, kind of kept them more relevant than any expe anybody expected them to be. The same is true, by the way, of the New York Times and of the Washington Post and places like that. Just that there was a, um, you know, Trump's personal obsession with these legacy media kind of kept them in the center of the conversation 
that there was always a time limit on that. And I think just, you know, you're already starting to see a recognition among the particularly the big broadcasters that the future is going to be digital and that they've really got to figure it out and take it seriously and can no longer and have to stop thinking about themselves as television channels. I mean, it's a very hard transition that they've been putting off for a long time. I think when you look at the big newspapers, one of the really interesting things, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Los Angeles Times in particular, all of their editors-in-chief are on the way out the door over the next months right. and year. Yeah, talk a little bit about that, because that's an interesting shift right there. People that have been in these posts for so long are going to be leaving soon. Dependent on who comes in, that's going to change the landscape again and how we cover presidents, how we cover just everyday occurrences in life. I think there are really two different things going on. One is that you have a generation of leaders who really you know, are newspaper men. Marty Barron at the Washington Post, Dean Bacay at the Times, and uh, Norman Perlstein at the Los Angeles Times, and who really oversaw a fairly painful transition from newsrooms that were print newspapers to digital brands. And those transitions, at least at the Post and the Times, are close are getting close to being complete. And there's an opportunity for new leaders to come in and really fully inhabit this new world rather than having to manage transition to it. And then I think, right, there are these big questions around does the media pull back toward a more sort of conservative, just the facts, ma'am, approach than under Donald Trump? I think it was so much of Trump's politics were directly about attacking these big media brands. There wasn't much choice around engaging him. You know, it wasn't just that he was lying, it's that he was lying about us and making us the focus and pulling us sort of into the arena. And I think there's a question, which I think is not at all a done deal about whether these institutions try to retreat back more toward traditional roles or whether they try to kind of like lean into this more engaged posture that, by the way, maybe drives digital subscriptions a little better. And I think that's a big question that I don't really know the answer to how it comes out. Social media and the big social media giants like Twitter and Facebook and all that, they've been coming under a lot of scrutiny recently about censorship, things like that, especially on the conservative side. And there was a term that was coined by somebody that you mentioned in your article called the attention wars and kind of basically all these different outlets grasping for your attention and everything. So how do these social media giants fit into this? You know, I think the sort of wide open kind of Wild West era of Facebook and Twitter is, is and YouTube is really ending. And they're coming under sort of political pressure to kind of clean up the platforms, which means, by the way, marginalizing voices that had been unconventional means if you're looking for a conservative voice on YouTube, increasingly you're going to find Fox News, not some random YouTuber, for better or for worse. And if you're looking for a liberal voice, you're probably more likely to find MSNBC. And I think there's also sort of a wave of regulatory pressure coming that's going to make them more responsible for things, maybe not for everything posted on the platform, but for things that get wide distribution, for things that go viral. And it's not something Americans pay a lot of attention to, but they're under a lot of pressure in Australia and in Europe. And I think because the U.S. traditionally doesn't regulate these platforms and is very, you know, does not regulate speech, that doesn't mean they don't have to operate in other parts of the world. And I think the practices that develop there tend to kind of bleed back into the U.S. And I think I think that is really ramping up. And there's, there's just a whole bunch of different factors that are pushing them toward a more controlled ecosystem. It doesn't necessarily mean censorship per se, that things are going to get deleted. I think it means it's going to be harder for you or for me as an outsider to come in and try to make a message spread on these platforms. And what is going on in Australia and the European Union? Obviously, these companies operate across all these countries. So are these countries making specific laws that are regulating them that then in turn impacts the way we do it? Or, you know, what's going on there? Yeah, you know, I think we in the U.S. have had this sort of 
philosophy of, wow, these new technology companies are so amazing and magical that we don't want to regulate them. We want to let them flourish. We're not going to treat them like normal businesses. We're going to let them do whatever they want. And I think there's an argument that that did help them become these dominant world global forces and incredibly vibrant American businesses. But in Australia, they're saying, well, Google's a monopoly, just like a railroad or like a port. And they put a guy and they assigned a guy who's spent his career regulating railroads and ports to like figure out how much they ought to pay to use the content of news publishers and things like that. And in Europe, they're, you know, they're saying, well, if like if Google News is going to take a headline from a newspaper, they should pay for that headline. And that's stuff that is sort of unthinkable here. But there, they don't really see any reason to treat these tech companies any different from any other company. They're just making some laws and demanding they follow them. One last thing that I wanted to ask as well that you mentioned in your article when we're talking about all these different types of media now, even pay for media, there's a place called Substack, which you mentioned is kind of like a Twitter premium where people can kind of subscribe to journalists, their favorite journalists or whatnot, and continue to get their newsletters and their content. How does this figure into the future of media and how it'll be changing? As these big social media giants sort of consolidate and make it harder for independent voices and outsiders to cut through, you know, whether those are really creative, interesting, constructive voices or people spreading hate. Meanwhile, there are these tools that allow individuals to go direct to their consumers in a, in a way that isn't controllable, I think, by the big central platforms. And I think you in Substack, an email newsletter platform is one of those. But they're just technical tools now that allow you or me to start a newsletter, start a video channel. And if we have a lot of people who like our content to get paid doing it, and, and it's sort of easy now in a way that it used to be hard. I think you'll see you know, both big stars and kind of knit people who have small but passionate followings start to go that way. Ben Smith, media columnist at The New York Times. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. And beyond the election, the economy may still be caught up in gridlock, as it seems likely that the Democrats will control the House and Republicans will control the Senate. Republicans have already signaled that if Joe Biden wins the presidency, They will prevent any major spending bill even as the economy continues to suffer through the pandemic. For more on the upcoming gridlock, we'll speak to Felix Salmon, chief financial correspondent at Axios. It's going to have a massive effect on the economy and not a good one. You might have noticed that Donald Trump has not really been able to get any significant legislation through since the 2018 midterms and the blue wave. And that's precisely because the Democrats now control the House. And if you have one house of Congress opposite to what's in the White House, you often wind up with this thing called gridlock, which is basically nothing happens. And nothing happening is often good for the country in good times. You can just leave the country to do whatever it naturally does, which is often good. But in the middle of a pandemic, it is terrible. What you need in a pandemic is you need effective legislative response to the pandemic and you need money going to people who've been hurt by the pandemic. And that becomes much, much more difficult as we've seen with this stimulus bill that just hasn't happened with the negotiations between the House and Treasury and that kind of stuff. If we get what it looks like it's going to get, which is a Democratic White House and the Republican Senate, that's gridlock, but it's even worse gridlock because the Republican Senate is just not going to accept any kind of spending bill coming from Biden. Like Mitch McConnell is going to be drawing the line. He's going to be refusing to spend money on anything. He's going to suddenly get religion on fiscal (laughs) conservatism. He's going to suddenly care about deficits and is going to be Basically, nothing will get past him. And that's the point right there, because Republicans have been very willing to 
go with President Trump on a range of things. Really, the fiscal conservative thing has kind of been thrown out the window during his tenure. But go back to when Obama was president. And as you mentioned, if Joe Biden takes the mantle there, they're going to put it all in lockdown right away. So just kind of having it on both sides for the Republicans there in the Senate. Mick Mulvaney, the former congressman turned White House chief of staff, actually came out not that long ago and said, Republicans, we really care about deficits when there's a Democrat in the White House, even though we are all seeing the COVID numbers, they're reaching 100,000 cases a day now, which is unprecedented. We need to spend money to fix this problem. And that looks like it's going to be really hard with a Democrat in the White House, so long as the Republicans hold the Senate. Let's talk a little bit more about that coronavirus recovery, because in your article, you, you made special mention of all of this, of how the first wave of the coronavirus, we hit that with a bunch of stimulus right away. We knew that the problem was coming. We're kind of in this second wave of things. We're starting to see the long-term effects, layoffs at state and local governments, and you know a lot of companies that are making furloughs, permanent layoffs now. I think you had a stat in here that if things keep going the way they do, we're going to have millions more workers lose their jobs by the end of next year. So that was just as a result of the state and local bailout. The first priority that Joe Biden has said that he has coming in, the top legislative priority for him would be an emergency fiscal stimulus aimed largely at state and local governments, because they're the ones who were left out the last time around. They're the ones facing a massive fiscal crunch. And that's where your money goes furthest. His chief economic advisor, Jared Bernstein, has said this many times, that if you really want to boost the economy and help us get back to work again in the face of we have like 20 million people on unemployment right now, what you do is you help state and local governments. It's an absolute no-brainer. It's the equivalent of infrastructure week, but it happens automatically and easily. And if you don't do that, you are going to lose an extra 5 million jobs. And those are jobs in cities, cities are the engine of the economy. Basically, what we're looking at is a double-dip recession. We're going to see negative GDP numbers. We're going to see a full-on recession if we don't get that kind of stimulus. And I just want to make one last call back to the election. As you mentioned at the end of your article, this might be the kind of unintended consequences of what the voters were doing. A lot of them might have voted for Joe Biden for president, but they stuck with their Republican candidates for Senate and maybe not what they wanted, but they're kind of creating this gridlock. So the big thing now, it looks like, is going to come in December with the runoff elections in Georgia. It looks like there's going to be two Senate runoffs in Georgia. If the Democrats can somehow win both of those, then they get 50 seats in the Senate. They have Kamala Harris as the tiebreaker in the Senate. They control the Senate rather than Mitch McConnell. And suddenly stimulus is happening. Everything is coming up roses and Biden can start doing what he wants. So those two Senate runoffs in Georgia in December are probably the most important election that we will see for the next four years. Felix Salmon, chief financial correspondent at Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.